Hey everyone, Overby here. I want to issue a correction of sorts in regards to our Batman Forever episode, which you're either about to listen to or is a few episodes back in your feed. In that episode, I make some cracks and pass some judgments on Peter David's tax struggles from years past, and I just wanted to say, I have no idea what the reality of that situation is, and it's totally possible that Peter David was 100% in the right. This research that I did into him was very cursory, very reliant on Google, honestly irresponsible and embarrassing. Uh, But, you know, I have not a single creative bone in my body, not a single creative talent inside of me. Um, My brain is basically like an abacus underwater. Like, it works, but you look at it and you're like, that's not supposed to be there. Anyway, I also didn't want to just delete what I said, the jokes I made from the episode, because I hate when podcasters do that, when they just are embarrassed about something or they get in trouble for something, and they pretend it didn't happen. It happened. I said some stuff that wasn't the nicest. I really appreciate the person who reached out on Twitter and basically said, hey, this is super uncool. Um, You know, thanks for keeping me in check. You know who you are. But uh, yeah. Peter David Innocent, enjoy the episode. Welcome to Authorized, a podcast where we ardently read the novelization of any film fortunate enough to have one. Novelizations are a chance for someone who didn't get to punch up a movie's story to take a post-mortem pass on the script. They're an opportunity to flesh out a villain whose backstory was barely explained on screen, or to elevate the subtext that your hero is going insane into glaring neon supertext. These books are a means by which the author can insert their own dad jokes into a story that, frankly, had too many puns already. Novelizations are, on balance, pretty decent. We're your hosts, a loose coalition of novelization enthusiasts. My name is Andrew Overby. My name is Johnny Pomato. I'm Hannah Blackman. And I'm Andrew Marco. Batman Forever is a superhero film directed by Joel Schumacher, based on the DC Comics character Batman, and released by Warner Brothers on June 9th, 1995. I'm so old. It is technically a sequel to Tim Burton's 1992 film Batman Returns. However, with the introduction of a new director and new lead actor, the film makes little mention of the Burton film that preceded it in an attempt to turn over a new leaf. The story concerns billionaire Bruce Wayne, Val Kilmer, and his battle on two fronts, one with his friend-turned-foe Harvey Dent, Tommy Lee Jones, a living embodiment of Bruce's past failures, and secondly, with disgruntled Wayne Enterprise employee Edward Nigma, Jim Carrey, whose obsession with Wayne curdles into bloodlust. When Wayne's foes team up to form a phalanx of destruction, he must consider whether the Batman 2 can become one half of a pair both heroically and romantically. 
The novelization of Batman Forever was written by Peter David, based on a screenplay written by Lee Batchelor, Janet Scott Batchelor, and Akiva Goldsman. It was published by DC Comics and Warner Books in 1995. Who is Peter David? Today on Authorized, we for the first time revisit a novelization author with whom we have already danced in the pale moonlight. Batman Forever gives us a glimpse into the life of Peter David before he discovered Supernatural, his favorite television show. <laughs> Who was this man pre-Dean and Sam Winchester? Peter David is the prolific author of many of his own original works, as well as works that play around in established IP. His original works include Nightlife, with a K, silent K, quote, a satirical fantasy in which King Arthur returns to contemporary New York and runs for mayor, end quote, as well as the two-part vampire love story Pulling Up Stakes. As we'll explore in today's novel, David has a cheeseball sense of humor. The tagline for Pulling Up Stakes Part 1 is, First love can really suck. The tagline for Pulling Up Stakes Part 2 is, Life dies, dot dot dot, and then you suck. I really enjoyed those taglines a lot more before I realized it was a vampire series. I thought he was just really obsessed with the word and concept of sucking. Amazon reviewer Dave Zaludek said of Pulling Up Stakes Part 2, Author used unnecessary foul language frequently, as well as incorporated familial deception. It ruined my enjoyment of the story. <laughs> you just were really tickled with that, huh? I really got into pulling up stakes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Peter David met his first wife, who is shouted out in his Batman Forever blurb, at a Star Trek convention. Between Batman Forever and Battleship, they were divorced, and David remarried to a bookseller and puppeteer. In March 2017, David announced on his blog that the IRS was demanding that he pay $88,000 in unpaid taxes, penalty, and interest, which began to accumulate when his divorce from his first wife used up his savings. This he sounds started like the origin of his own bat villain. Like, uh, <laughs> yeah, okay. The I, adapter? I'm, I don't know. I'm of two minds on this, which is, how do we feel about someone going public with their financial woes as the product of a divorce. Now, I'm not divorce shaming anyone, but it is still tax fraud, right? I would say so, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, he didn't pay his taxes, that's on him. I don't care if he was like paying alimony. Like, prep for that, dude. It's just very odd that he was like, look, here's what happened. I didn't pay my taxes. Please help me. <laughs> Uh, he started a GoFundMe campaign to raise the money from friends and fans, which raised 68000 of the 88000 by sometime a couple months after he started it. David announced that he would begin a Patreon account where he would publish new work and which would be used to pay taxes and asked his readers for their, co for their content requests. By a month later, having sold some original comics artwork acquired two decades earlier, his debts were paid off. Peter David, who in recent years almost exclusively tweeted his dislike of Donald Trump's administration, has largely gone silent since the inauguration of Joe Biden. His purpose presumably fulfilled, he has transitioned into a state of rest. David enjoys bowling and practices Tai Chi. So, this is so much deeper than you went on him the first time. <laughs> you know, Hannah, I, I really... 
challenged myself to can I can I write an interesting blurb about a guy that I attempted to comprehensively cover the first time with all <laughs> new information? <laughs> now, is it a little immoral on a podcast about his writing to sort of slam his uh, tax dodging? Maybe. I mean, it's just going to be awkward when I reveal that he's in the room with me now as a special surprise guest. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, nah, I, this is maybe a mistake. I should have thought this out better. Uh, it's be really embarrassing when I say his writing has gotten worse over time. Ooh. <laughs> I have to ask Andrew, because I, I don't want to spoil ahead of time. We're going to cover Batman and Robin at some point. Did he also do Batman and Robin? He did not. Uh, Batman and Robin was written by a person named Michael Jan Friedman. So, because oh, I was curious if you'd have to go even further in depth on <laughs> Peter David, which could still happen. There are other books out there, but a lot of novelizations. He has. I think it's almost inevitable that we end up going back to David. I, I was discussing with Hannah recently how we had to sort of specifically avoid dipping into him a third time in the second season because he's quite prolific. Uh, so, as far as Batman Forever is concerned. With the films of Joel Schumacher, I'm not terribly acquainted with them or with his career arc. Uh, Hannah, I was hoping to punt over to you. Uh, do you know sort of where uh, in his career this was occurring? And uh, what do you think about the film Batman Forever in general? Well, wait a yeah. minute. How do you know that Hannah has any knowledge on Joel Schumacher films? Uh, I, I, what, uh, what would give you visually that cue that our podcast listeners cannot see? Oh, you mean the way Hannah is styled currently? <laughs> <laughs> oh, is it the shirt she's wearing that says Joel Schumacher is a good director, actually? Mm-hmm. It, yeah. <laughs> not only uh, is she wearing that shirt. Wait, I worded that wrong. <laughs> but she's also wearing <laughs> shoes. Where am I going with that? <laughs> no, not only uh, do I not know a lot about Joel Schumacher. I know so little about him that I that actually surprises me. I, I didn't know he was clowned on. Well, as the perhaps number one Joel Schumacher defender in the world, um, a couple of years ago, I watched all of his movies. I wrote a little something about all of them. They're currently on a website that I pay for that only has that one thing on it. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're intrigued, um, there's a link on my Twitter. But uh, basically, Joel Schumacher, especially after these Batman movies, basically everyone was like, uh, he's a hack. He sucks. His movies are gaudy and shitty, which is not correct. Um, this is like on the front half of his career. We're after The Lost Boys. We're after my favorite movie of all time, Flatliners, which are two like gothic, heightened, dramatic neon movies. And from a, you know, if I was a producer attempting to replace tim burton i think at this point in his career joel schumacher makes sense looking at some things he's done and like he can fit the visual style he has a sense of like drama and comic book nonsense um technically this is coming off of three human dramas the client falling down and dying young two of which are just like about people going through stuff. I mean, all of them are about people going through stuff. Falling Down is like maybe slightly more heightened, but doesn't have a lot of his visual flair. Um, and then, pow, Batman Forever, <laughs> <laughs> which is not my favorite of the two Schumacher Batman. It's, Agreed. Uh, I think it's the worser one, though it includes my two favorite Batman villains, period. 
but you know, it's it's not a very strong movie. And I think Joel learned a lot from making Batman Forever and applied that to Batman and Robin much more successfully. Yeah, my feeling was always that uh, when I saw this movie theatrically in 1995, uh, at the time I thought, while watching it, is Joel Schumacher just kind of doing an Adam West episode with this? I mean, it's kind of flirting with that. There's little hints here and there. And uh, because it was kind of waffling between the Tim Burton style and this really over-the-top, pun-filled uh, Adam West style, I, I, I don't know. I just didn't think it worked at all. Cut to Batman and Robin, where... It is never a question that, yes, oh, yes, he is definitely doing an Adam West episode. Uh, Batman as live-action cartoon. Yeah, and, uh, and I do have a, a real soft spot for that movie. This one, considerably less so. Well, can I say, so, I, this is the only the second of the, I don't know what we call it, the original Batman franchise that i've seen because i've only i'd only seen batman and robin before this Good Lord. so i was going wow. in with that sort of excessive version and i will say it's interesting you mentioned hannah that this is sort of a he, he's coming on to batman forever after doing some human dramas because i feel like there's a lot of human drama in this there's a lot of bruce wayne's psyche in this oh yeah which i did not expect coming in batman and robin where it's Clooney and there's no interiority to that character. He's just George Clooney as Batman. Yeah, so it was really interesting to watch a movie that, and read a book, which has even more interiority. That's sort of talking a lot about what Bruce Wayne is going through and in his kind of personal life and in the universe. I mean, an alternate title for this movie could have been Batman goes to therapy. Uh, <laughs> quite literally. That is what it's about. Even when it's not about that boy, oh boy, are we really getting inside? Uh, yeah. you know, uh, literally his head. everyone needs to go to therapy and find someone whose hand they can hold. Uh, additional point about Mr. Schumacher. If I was ever going to hire anybody to make a movie about found or made family, which Batman and Forever is, it would be Joel Schumacher. That's like his cup of tea, his forte. Is like you may not be related to these people by blood, but you love them. <laughs> it's beautiful. It's a real gift. Speaking of the book uh, and that idea of this being a very therapeutic interior story, uh, Peter David fascinates me because he writes these sequences in the book where Bruce Wayne is essentially processing trauma. He's processing the trauma of watching his parents be murdered, and and he feels feels this immense culpability in regard to that. But the way that Peter David writes these things that are specific to the book, because these there's all these dream sequences, these almost trauma flashback sort of um, amalgams that he has that are not on screen. But for some reason, Peter David writes them all as if they are being cinematically shot. Instant well, I think there is a very good reason for that. Yes. Uh, this, this novelization, which I like quite a bit, I like way more than the finished film, is mm -hmm. uh, taken from the shooting script. And not just that, but a lot of what is in this book uh, was shot and uh, was originally part of the film. The biggest thing of you know, of the whole thing that was cut was this um, uh, voice of this monstrous bat 
that is inside of uh, Bruce's head the whole time, and then is finally personified uh, in a you know a giant uh, monster bat suit uh, that uh, was much publicized. I remember reading an interview in Premier Magazine. Remember that, kids? Uh, with uh, <laughs> uh, Val Kilmer and Jim Carrey, you know, promoting this film. And they went on for paragraphs about all of their favorite effects in the film. And they both agreed, best thing in the whole film is the giant bat. Oh, the giant bat is amazing. Oh, oh just wait till you see the giant bat. There are pictures of the giant yeah. bat. You can I was going to say, I was going to say because I was watching this movie and I'm like, okay, I'm pretty sure there's dream sequences in this. I'm pretty sure there's a giant bat and was disappointed. And then I saw Rick Baker's name in the credits and I'm like, what did Rick Baker do in this movie? There was nothing that creaturey other than, I guess, Two-Face's face. But I think you're right, Johnny, in reading this book, those sequences and also there's even just great like kind of reoccurring jokes there's a whole thing with sugar and spice which i'm sure we'll get into oh boy about them kind of like always knowing somebody who can get them out of the situation yeah which feels like something that is in a script that was meant to be shot and should have been in this movie because i would have i think it fits the tone of this movie perfectly but it's clearly was lost in the edit and there's a lot of that in this book though obviously we'll get into the movie starts about 50 pages into this book. It, yeah, 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 48 by my count, but even then it kind of dances around. Uh, yeah. but, you know, it, yes, we're it, 48 pages in is when we get to our first scene that is also in the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, that's, that's really something. Uh, now, some of what precedes that was shot. Uh, primarily uh, Two-Face's escape from Arkham Asylum. That is a sequence that, that is on the uh, a deleted scene on the Blu-ray. That feels uh, like something that should be in the movie as well, given how the movie ends. It's like a bookend piece. Yeah, yeah. It feels like a thing that should be in a movie as compared to like the childhood flashbacks where you're like, this is not something you would actually put in a movie. <laughs> I, I just wanted to, uh, I, that's so fascinating that these are, that these like dream sequences are based on real scenes. The way that Peter David writes them sometimes though, it it almost reminds me of beat poetry. It's so confusing. <laughs> there there is a passage on 193 and I feel like I have a habit of jumping to the end of these books when we start these uh. episodes. But there is a passage on 193 where Batman has been buried in dirt in a subway museum and um <laughs> He is processing, you know, this trauma of his parents dying while also just processing the trauma of the weight of dirt. (laughs) And he goes, uh, let's see, desiccated, skeletal, clawing at his feet, pulling him down with them into the grave that he had once stood in front of and sworn that he would dedicate his life to. To what? To fighting crime? He could do that through the Wayne Foundation. To vengeance? Why did killing grate against his soul then? Why not an eye for an eye, eyes filled with sand, tooth for a tooth, (laughs) mouth spitting out dirt? To bring them back, nothing could. To make them rest easier, they were dead. To join them? I appreciate an artistic flourish in a book. I'm not saying I don't like it. It, it's, (laughs) It's just very strange to read like on the page it feels like it is begging to be transferred to a visual medium does that make sense like it's it's being written as if in a script like for the intention of a camera Mm -hmm. i think so especially given that i mean this is page 193 but if you go back to so for the listener 
the first three chapters of this are basically backstories on Batman, the Riddler, and Two-Face. Very interesting. And the Batman backstory, which really takes a while to tell you, hey, this is Bruce Wayne, even though we're all like, well, this kid's parents are dead, it's Bruce Wayne, uh, begins that. And I feel like it comes up again and again. Like, Peter David really, really drives home, like, why are you doing this, Batman? Are you sad because your parents are dead? It's the whole crux of the movie. It's the crux of the book. So I can understand it being like this flourish at that point in the book can feel a little excessive because we've already heard it like 10 times already. Yeah. I mean, the the big joke in every Batman adaptation is like, okay, when are we going to get to the flashback when we see, you know, Thomas and Martha Wayne killed again? Like every Batman movie has to do it at some point. And this one does not. It just talks about constantly the aftermath of it and all of the, the the guilt that Bruce feels and all of these flashbacks and dream sequences. And the funniest thing to me, having rewatched the film last night after I swore I would never watch that movie again, uh, the funniest thing to me is that it does have all of the setup that gets paid off in the book. The, this whole setup of, oh, and I'm, I, well, I fell in the cave, and but there's also this book. There's this book in my father's study, leather-bound book, very important. It, it ends up being his journal. And in the book, you, you find it's, his, it's uh, Thomas Wayne's journal, and uh, there's a thing that says, uh, oh, well, I, uh, oh, Bruce really wants to go to the movies tonight, so I guess we're going to the movies tonight. And then this is where all of his guilt comes from. It's like, oh, no, they would still be alive if I didn't make them go to the movies. And then he reads on towards the end of the, the film. This is also a deleted scene. Uh, and it says, uh, oh, well, I don't want to go see Bruce's cartoon, so we're going to go see Zorro instead. And the big revelation that Bruce Wayne has is, it's not my fault. It's not my fault. However, in the movie, you keep seeing that book constantly. <laughs> they keep yeah. showing the book without ever explaining why the book is important. All of that is deleted. But it's in this book, and it, it's one of the reasons I think that the book is a much better Batman movie than the movie ends up being. I agree that I think the book is like a more like A to Z cohesive piece of fiction, um, in, especially the stuff with Nicole Kidman's character, which yeah. we should discuss separately, because like that plot line is like insane in the movie and makes much more sense <laughs> in the book. Uh, but I think it's interesting in the way that like this book is very much about like Bruce's guilt. He's guilty. He can't get over it. And the move and the rest, everything else in the story is about duality. Are you Bruce Wayne or are you Batman? And those two plots like don't really speak to each other. No. And for me, the like big crux of the movie is the part of the end where he says, I'm both Bruce Wayne and Batman because I choose to be. This is my choice. And that's like the culmination of what the movie is doing. Um, and so like all the stuff that's good in the book like doesn't feed into that. And so it is snip snip to write out of the movie um, while still leaving a lot of the remnants. I do think that there is a, at least one of the reasons why a lot of this was cut is uh, especially after watching the deleted scenes, Val Kilmer is really bad in this movie. And, and I, hey, 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 oh, disagree. I, I like Val Kilmer. Really? Oh, oh, well, okay. I defy you to watch the deleted scenes and say, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> good, good, good. His, his, uh, his moment when he says to, to Alfred, I'm Batman, you know, that, that, that culminating big moment in the book, uh, was shot for the movie and he does not sell it whatsoever. It's, uh, and then he's just also whispery the whole time. He has no personality. Like, 
This is my issue with this movie is that no one gets properly introduced. Now, arguably, you don't need to introduce Batman because we've already seen two movies about Batman. This is still the same Batman, even if a lot of other things are different. But he doesn't even announce himself as this kind of new iteration. It's just like, you know, they they didn't uh, change a thing as if Michael Keaton was going to keep playing him. And then... Yes, he was. So uh, that's very, part of it. very nearly, yeah. And then but also, the same is true for Two Face. Is is that what you're going to say? Because well, I was going to say the same is true of George Clooney in the next movie. Is that they just act as if George Clooney's always been Batman, and Clooney yeah. is also not very good. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm I'm more pro Val Kilmer than I am Clooney performance wise. I think what mm. Val Kilmer is doing is like very interior and maybe like too muted for the movie, so you can't really read it. Like it doesn't read at the same level that you would need it to. But when he's delivering, he is delivering yeah. at his own level, and when he's not, he is so checked out. <laughs> and uh, yes. He like clearly doesn't want to be there and that's unfortunate <laughs> yeah I, I i mean he notoriously did not get along with joel schumacher at all uh he was he was pretty much under duress and uh i will concede uh maybe the best jawline of any of the batman of that era Amazing. i mean wow he looks Amazing. good in that suit it really works and his mouth under the yeah. towel is like they really like light it in a way when he's batman where his lips are just like Unbelievable. We this this gets and this is away from the the book of it all. But Joel knows how to light people. Mm-hmm. His whole career is knowing how to make people look good, who are kind of monsters or weirdos or yeah. interesting characters. And it's it's certainly not to the degree of sort of you know Greek Greco Roman statues that is in the next movie. But like people look good in this movie. It's a very if peculiarly shot movie, but it's a very like interestingly kind of lit movie. Every still frame is beautiful. In action it's a little muddy and gross. Is is my take. That's a that's a really great way to describe it. Like there there's no point at which I felt like looking away from the screen. It's a it's a very uh striking just the entire aesthetic and the and the neon colors and everything. But then the moment that they start punching or driving I started thinking to myself, like, did I did I turn my motion smoothing back on? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I spent a lot of my life having only seen the Burtons and the Nolans. And I always thought that college humor was kind of doing Batman dirty. You know, they had like the Pete Holmes videos where he was like, you know, being this over the top reclusive Batman and I was like oh they're they're kind of I get that Batman's hokey but they're they're leaning into it too much in these videos like and then now I just realized they were fully basing it off of Val Kilmer completely (laughs) it was just the Val Kilmer Batman um I mean uh, for the one reason being that the two men just look incredibly alike um but uh yeah I thought Val was I I saw that he was doing a more interior read on Batman. I just don't think he has the face for it. Uh, the, the guy, just an absolutely beautiful guy. Um, but he's, he's hunk beautiful. He's like a, he's, he's got a stoicism to him where I could not read interior shifts in him. And I could not read sadness in his eyes the way I can in a Keaton, if that makes sense. But that works in his sort of public facing persona as Bruce Wayne. Because he's very kind of like stoic, cool under pressure as Bruce Wayne. I can understand that not working 
when he's having heart to hearts with Chase Meridian or Dick Grayson. Mm -hmm. But I think it at least works as Batman and as Wayne Enterprises, Bruce Wayne. And I like his Batman. I think his like stoic, awkward, like doing full body turns, (laughs) like really works well. And I, I think he does struggle with like the emotional side of the Bruce Wayne requirement. But the Batman side, he's like, looks good, is tough. Like, he shows up on a rooftop, and I'm like, ooh, fun. You know? like, <laughs> Here's the thing. Can we, can we see Michael Keaton falling in love with someone in the Not way that we can see the, Val like, Kilmer? you know, kinky Catwoman stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it, it makes sense when it's Michelle Pfeiffer giving that performance, but I can see Val Kilmer and Nicole Kidman having a romance in a movie. Uh, not this movie where their relationship is fucking psychotic. <laughs> yes. Um, which, like, let's discuss how it happens in the book where the scenes are in a totally different order. Yes. Am I the only one of us, I, I must be, that essentially read this book before seeing the movie? No, I read the book first. But you had the seen the movie before. No, I'd only oh. seen Batman and Robin. Okay, then did you have the same experience as me? Which is, first off, I turned it on and, and I thought... I hadn't finished the book at this point, but I had read, you know, uh, I had read like the first act, like 100 pages. And I turned the movie on and uh, there it's the bank robbery scene. And I was like, the first 100 pages only encompasses the first seven minutes of the movie. Pretty much. (laughs) Um, But also in the film, the first interaction or not the first, but the key interaction between Batman and Chase Meridian on the rooftop happens so early. It happens. Yeah, and it's I like want to second scene. Together. I want to say like minute 12 it's happening and it's so aggressively horny. She, she's going after him so hard that it, it I really just felt like run away. <laughs> because they weren't they weren't building on any sort of bond. It just seems like she has like she has latched onto him in this in this frightening way. Yeah, I think the yeah. the way the relationship reads in the movie is like really gross. She is so horny for Batman. And the sort of cute banter of like, it's the car, chicks dig the car, which in the book I think reads is quite charming because they've had multiple interactions together. Right. In the movie, it's like it, his the look in his eyes is like I gotta get out of here. I'm so scared of her. Like he seems so uncomfortable around her as like a woman. Yes. <laughs> is and, the chicks dig the car line in the movie? Because I was waiting. Chicks for, love the car in the movie. I think it's chicks dig the car in the in, next in the movie. next movie. I remember that line because that it, this is why Superman works alone. Um, yeah, the, I, I was actually wondering: Did the line from the sec, from uh, Batman and Robin get lifted from this novel? Because yeah, I, I somehow missed the uh, Chase Meridian. I mean, it's, yeah, it, it's that car, takes right? us back to our Gremlins read. You know, oh, yeah. Did the did the novelization influence the movie? Which came first, the chicken or the egg? Um, I will say, having just finished reading this book and watched the movie today. The is it the car chicks love the car is in both the book and the movie, but it's kind of a throwaway. Okay. It's not as much of like a punchline as it is in Batman or Robin. Yeah. Maybe I was getting a little sleepy by that point last well, night. Well, this is, there. this is kind of a good transition is there was a lot of stuff reading this book that when I saw the movie, I was surprised that there were things in this book that I would have assumed were Jim Carrey ad libs. Yeah. There was a lot of stuff yeah. where I'm like this, like, obviously, he has many more than are in the book. But I was reading this, I'm like, 
this seems like something he would have said on like B12 when they're playing Battleship yeah. to bring the Peter David full circle. At the end, he says, that's my favorite vitamin. That feels like something he would have said on the day. Yeah. That does not feel like uh, I mean, even Lee that whole, Bachelor, like, Janet Scott Bachelor, and Akiva Goldsmith were saying on the day. That whole scene where he like first goes to Two Faces Cave and he's like, it's this, with a, it's heavy metal with a touch of home and garden. It's you, but it's so you. Like yeah. all that feels like ad-libbed and improv and it's fun and it's straight in the book same with the um oh if you had told me we could have done this caper together secured the movie rights and i just when i watched that on the movie last night i thought oh my gosh what a dumb line jeez jim <laughs> you're, you're ad-libbing that on set and then i read it in the book i think this was in the script oh my god what the- <laughs> can we talk about the one riddler line that definitely isn't in the movie oh please Go ahead. Uh, okay, let me find this. <laughs> Hold on just a moment. Uh, I am going to be going to... But, 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 156. Now, before I read it, and please don't spoil what this is, Andrew, oh, yeah. can, you confirm, I, <laughs> can you confirm this is not in the movie, right? I didn't look away at a key moment. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, the Riddler's just doing evil, you know, and, and the evil's going great. And uh, the passage reads, and as the crates with the boxes, the boxes being the evil object that he uses, were loaded out to waiting airlifts, Nigma looked down upon it all, spread wide his arms, and shouted in glorious celebration, somebody stop me. But yeah, no, I, no, I'm oh, not done. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. And, and shouted in glorious celebration, somebody stop me. But no one did. Okay, is that yeah. like from the mask? You're not doing justice to the five yeah. S's. Yes, that, yeah. that, that was from the mask. I read it, and I was like, well, I remember Jim Carrey saying that <laughs> line. It must be in heaven forever. Not only was it from the mask. It scared me. Not only was it from the mask, but it was also from everybody who saw the mask. Yes. I mean, the summer that came out, everybody, yeah, I, does it, well, you're also all too young to remember when everyone was impersonating uh, Austin Powers. Oh, okay, how about when Borat came out and everyone spent the years saying, my wife, my wife. I mean, that's what the mask was. That was like the first one I remember being like that. Everyone was, uh, and, uh, and you also have to consider Jim Carrey's meteoric rise as a major star happened so fast. By uh, the time that Batman Forever came out, that was less than a year and a half after Ace Ventura came out. Like, that's how quickly it all happened. Uh, Well, you can tell in the movie because he does have an Ace Ventura really at some point in the movie. Mm -hmm. Like, he's clearly in that sort of mask Ace Ventura liar liar zone of just like, I'm just going to throw stuff out there and they're going to edit together what works Uh, at a certain point. Full buffoonery. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that Peter David, I think Peter David was, you know, he also had Jim Carrey fever. Everyone did. He was just that huge. We all do. (laughs) Of course we do. Uh, And so I think that he was relishing in doing these little sneaky references like that and trying to write like him. There was another uh, descriptive passage that mentions uh, the Riddler sounding like Edward G. Robinson, like doing a, yeah, you see, and uh, my first thought was like, oh, my God, he's actually like writing in Jim Carrey's insufferable impressions that he is overdoing in all of these movies. <laughs> but this is now like in the text. 
Uh, yeah, uh, I will say there's also, uh, I don't know if you caught it, uh, in addition to the Somebody Stop Me, uh, referencing Jim Carrey and the Mask, there is a reference to Tommy Lee Jones's big hit that preceded this, The Fugitive. Did anyone catch it? I did not. When, when Two-Face goes into the subway system, Batman says... We've got a gopher, which is Tommy Lee Jones's line oh. in The Fugitive. I was going to oh. say that because I actually thought the Fugitive, not the Fugitive, sorry, the the Two Face character that we get in the book feels a lot more serious than the Two Face that we get in the movie. And I'm coming from a, most of my perspective on Tommy Lee Jones is you know post Men in Black, sure. ruffled grandpa. So to see him hamming it up to such a degree. After reading a book where it's like, yeah, there's he gets into the fun of it all, but he seems sort of violent and has sort of a serious backstory because we get so much more interiority. I was really surprised that that was his take on it. Yeah, well, I don't know if it was his take. I, I allegedly Tommy Lee Jones was miserable making this movie. He hated every second of it. Uh, I think it that doesn't the, look it. Yeah, I think that the character of Two Face is so poorly. Uh, conceived as basically once again, and this is true with the Riddler as well. It's just the Joker. Like everyone is the Joker. Totally. Oh yeah. Let, let's have uh, two face be like maniacally cackling constantly. And like, just, just really high on his criminal antics when two face as a villain, not to be a Batman dork about things, <laughs> but as a villain, he is the angry, sad, yeah. just really resentful character. That that guy doesn't crack a smile ever. Either side of his face ever cracks a smile. And uh, in this, they just make him too goofy and uh, and 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 excited. And I was shocked uh, revisiting the film that wow, Tommy Lee Jones was I won't say better than I remembered, but uh, you wouldn't be able to initially tell that he was uh, phoning it in and did He's not really want to be involved. Yeah. He really yeah. is. For yeah. better or worse. I, I think what, just before we move away from it, uh, the, the thing that we were just talking about with, with uh, doing the mask line and doing the fugitive line, I think that is just a Peter David thing. Because if you recall in Battleship, he has that line about Liam Neeson's character appearing to be a wise Jedi. He, he right. loves, he thinks he's clever. He thinks those are so clever. Um, <laughs> Uh, on the topic of Two-Face, I could not believe how much the movie just assumed I got his deal. Mm. The movie doesn't yeah. even have the scene in the book where he and Batman are buddies at the beginning. Uh, it just goes straight to Two-Face as a villain, and then Batman goes, oh yeah, we were really good friends. Then he got acid thrown in his face by someone else, and he hates me now. He like he's he wants but it's to not kill because me. of that he hates him. It's because of yeah. It's because he arrested him and sent him to the asylum that he hates. It him. just seems like the most obvious thing that the Nolan movies did to go. Hey, the turn from friend to foe. Maybe that's the interesting part. But uh, Andrew, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't think it's clear from the movie that 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 is why he hates him. No, that's no. in the book. I'm yeah. Saying. yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. The movie is just like, Two-Face is our villain, get excited. Right. And I it, would be it, fine with that if it was, I mean, like, almost in general, I'm like, I don't, you don't need to tell me why villains are villains. I like it when they steal jewels. Like, I again, don't need a the, lot of it's work. The, Joel Schumacher is less interested in those backstories because that's the same thing with Mr. Freeze. Yeah. Batman and Robin starts and Mr. Freeze is like, hey, 
ice puns. Not only that, but Alfred like announces at the start of Batman Robin, Batman, a new villain named Mr. Freeze is at the museum or something. <laughs> I like the idea that you might just like submit your villain application. <laughs> you are. But I will it's say after watching Batman Forever, I went and I watched the Batman animated series mm. like intro to Two-Face episodes, mm-hmm. which feel call me crazy. Like the actual origin for Two Face and Batman Forever. Like there was a line in this book where he's like, "I used to have a whole life. I had a fiance, and now I'm this yeah. horrible monster." And I'm like, "That's just what they did on the animated show." Like it feels like it's playing in all of the sandboxes. This is his historic backstory. Yeah, though, is that he had m- well, yeah, I acid know. thrown in like his face by a mobster. Of, I don't right? know. Yeah, but like I don't know. The whole vibe to me felt like. And the way that that arc in the animated series plays out also ends with Batman throwing a lot of coins. And oh my like, ah, God. Too many coins. Well, that's what I wanted to get into about the book is that the ending of the, uh, the two, fa- two face in the book it's, is so much it's better. So than what we much get in the better. Movie. Yeah. I was so I disappointed watching that, the movie. Not to be funny, but like, I think there's a lot of things the book does better, like a lot of things, but I think the ending is not one of them. But what's so like, different other than that? Well, I think that, like Dick Grayson in the movie says like, I can't promise I'm not going to kill Two-Face. And Batman says like, you got to do your own thing. I can't tell you what to do. And then when he does decide to do the right thing, it's more satisfying. That's a better piece of plot line. Mm-hmm. And I think the stuff with Two-Face, like him choosing to kill himself feels like, I don't know, not satisfying to me. I think Batman whoopsies killing him is pretty fucked up. Yeah. I like him being but, Im- essentially impaled upon his own logic um kind of a a seemingly left turn but did you guys watch review the tv show the andy daly one oh yeah this two face in this movie and book is a lot like the the magic eight ball episode where he (laughs) like this is what i like about two face and the riddler is that they are rule based villains they follow (laughs) a set of rules that they have developed for themselves and it always backfires on them and that's what gets them caught it's specifically like that conceit of like Forrest McNeil using the magic eight ball in that it's the illusion of leaving everything up to chance, but he's also deciding what the inflection points are at which he flips the coin. And that influences things almost more than the coin flip, because what's to keep him from reflipping on murdering a person every three seconds? Yeah. I mean, he does reflip. He totally does reflip. My favorite things about him in the movie <laughs> is that he's like, I've made up my mind actually, but I do have rules. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I, my biggest problem with this movie has always been that I personally do not like that we uh, have to do an origin story every time with one of these movies. And so, in theory, I should like that this movie avoids the origin for Two Face. But you need something. You need something more than like, hey, Batman, Two-Face is out again. It's like, at, at what again? We know we have no idea who this guy is. <laughs> Doing crimes. Uh, yeah. Doing the, crimes. Yeah, That's at, enough for me. <laughs> I mean, at the very least, I don't think you needed his origin in this movie. But I do think that what should have been in the movie is his escape from Arkham. So that because that scene is full of so much information about who he is, you it, it basically replaces the origin. And it gives you this notion that... Uh, oh, he was, uh, he, you know, he went on a spree initially, he was captured, and then this is his, like, grand release. It almost, 
justifies how excited he is to suddenly be, you know, out there again in the world. Right. Uh, yeah, I, I think that that scene, uh, which in the film uh, features uh, Rene Abergenois, uh, in a, as, as, did anyone catch this? Do- oh, Dr. Burton? Dr. Burton, with yeah, a very conspicuous haircut. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, I think it's cute. It's cute. <laughs> it's cute. But I had never noticed that before. I had never made the connection. It's like, oh, Dr. Burton, cute. Um, well, when you see it on the page 30 times, it makes a little more yeah. sense <laughs> than in the film, one <laughs> reference. Uh, maybe I'm misremembering the movie. This this whole thing with Two-Faces Escape is not in the movie. Okay. No. So no. It was shot, though. It, it, it's a deleted scene on the DVD. For the for the listener, basically, the, the, cir- the circumstances of Two-Faces Escape are that an orderly at uh, Arkham has agreed to free Two-Face for, what is it, half a million dollars? And uh, the orderly is a gambling addict, and Two-Face basically makes him the offer of double or nothing. And it's just, just to read from page 40 here, uh, this is the guy considering whether to take the offer. Um, He goes, uh, Richter's immediate impulse was to say no. No, not just say it, shout it. Scream it. Are you insane? I'm risking my career, my freedom, violating trust, breaking the law. And you're asking if I want a chance winding up having nothing to show for it except an empty cell, a mountain of debts, and some guys who would rip my insides out just for kicks, much less for the amount of money I owe them. All that very correct, very understandable response rattled around in his head. But during that time, the twinkle of the coin sparkled in his eyes. A million bucks. It's just a really fun chapter where the guy, his sole characteristic, it feels like a Stephen King book. His sole characteristic is that he's a gambling addict and you know exactly how the scene is going to go. But still, the predictability of it is incredibly satisfying. He ends up getting the nothing and Two-Face defines nothing as killing him, uh, making him into a nothing. I don't know. I I just loved it so much. It's also a much better introduction to the concept of the coin than we get in the film. The the flip of the coin is set up so good here that it actually, like, we accept the idea that, like, okay, this is what he's about. He likes to flip the coin. Uh, It it's so stupid when he does it with the, the bank guard and, you know, before he puts them in the safe, I, I don't know, but it, it's, I, I guess it's superfluous. You don't need both of them, but they picked the wrong one in my opinion. Yeah. That bank sequence is not as good as it should be. Unfortunately. Yeah. I think um. it's hard not to be spoiled with the two face coin flip and two face in general by living in a world where the dark Knight movie exists. No, where we get such a, it. Yeah, well, I'm just saying that we're, there is at least enough backstory on Two-Face. Whereas I feel like in 1995, and Johnny, you were seeing this in theaters, so you might be able to speak more to it. Like, was the Adam West Batman series more in people's mind? Is Two-Face in that series? I do not think Two-Face is ever in uh, the original Adam West series. Was I think the cartoon came, around by this point? The cartoon yes. had started, and I think you had seen Two Face. Um, yeah, because it then, feels very course, much like people culturally yeah, knew him. Yeah, uh, and then Two Face. Well, Harvey Dent is also in the Tim Burton Batman movie, the first right. one, played by Billy D. Williams. I think beautifully. I he love Billy D. Williams in that movie, and I so wish that he had gone to play it. I I think that uh, because that's another thing. I didn't need the entire origin story. 
of, you know, oh, the acid in the face and everything. But you know what I do like is I like seeing Harvey Dent before he goes mad. I like to see him as a normal person because that impacts the crazy side of him a little more. It may, or it makes that side of him more impactful to see, oh, his his fall, uh, which, uh, you know, th- this it just throws you right in. I think the other option is that he, as a character, has more dichotomy. That you have more of like, there's really two personalities here. And one is saying, no, let's not kill people. And the other one's saying like, I love to murder. Mm-hmm. Um, which is also not what the Batman Forever is doing. But I feel like if you're not going to do the before and after, you have to do it simultaneously. You know what I mean? Um, I do kind of like that in the movie. And like the, the book does this similarly. There's like a news report of like, you all remember Harvey Dent? He got acid thrown in his face. Ah, now he's crazy. Like, the Gotham News situation is... <laughs> oh, you mean GNN? <laughs> yeah, the Gotham News Network. Um, just like their ability to be like, crazy man on the loose, again. <laughs> just, I love that for them. <laughs> also, in the uh, in the book, Bruce is, is very, uh, you know, he he's troubled by the incident of uh, Harvey Dent having the acid thrown in his face. And he describes the day, he goes... I went to the courthouse as Bruce Wayne uh, because I figured even if I couldn't be Batman there, I I could be there to protect him and watch over him. And then in the movie, just fully Batman (laughs) breaks out in the courtroom. Where was he? Where was he standing? Sitting in the back, just like watching the trial. I don't know. (laughs) You know, um, yeah. I mean, I think the, the pairing of villains is a good, good concept. In execution, a little rough. In the book, a little less rough because we're not dealing with those, like, really... Personalities. Yeah, those actor things, which are a lot to handle. And, like, I think Jim Carrey is great, and I like him in many things, and I like him in the first half of Batman Forever a lot. And then he goes full Jim Carrey in ways that I'm like, reel it back in, baby! Yeah, you make a great point, and it's in the book as well, when, like, he's reporting on the suicide of Ed Bagley Jr.'s character, and he's kind of going between, like, I'm so sad, I'm so sad, here's his suicide note, anyway, I'm so sad, so sad. That stuff works so well, and it's in the book, and it's funny in the book, but there are things that work in the second half of the book that do not work in the movie because it's him really yeah, you know grabbing his threat. groin and all those things yeah it really was... works in the book i think that the riddler is like well i i would be scared of this guy when we mm-hmm. reached the end yeah you know? especially knowing his you have his interior life more so he's an obsessive person and you're hearing him think about that obsessiveness mm-hmm. which works I've also never loved I, – I, I do think that Carrie does about as good a job as he could do with the material he's given. And I do think that he gives in to some of his more uh, you know, Jim Carrey instincts later in the film. But also, it was 1995. That's what everyone wanted to see. And They hired he, him to do that. Exactly. Uh, the thing that always has bugged me, uh, it, it's just a trope I don't like. And this is not Jim Carrey's fault. And uh, it, it's, I don't think it's Joel Schumacher's fault, really. I just get so tired of the origin story of the awkward nerd 
who gets a, a, a little taste of evil and then instantly turns cooler and better dressed. And, you know, we've seen this so many times. I mean, we'll see it next in Batman Robin with Uma Thurman. Uh, to a lesser extent, Michelle Pfeiffer, because I think that, I don't know, that that's not a, quite as stark a transition. Uh, Jamie Foxx in uh, uh, the one Spider-Man Amazing movie. Spider-Man too. Yes. And, uh, and then as recently as uh, Kristen Wiig in Wonder Woman 1984, another, like, mousy nerd who then, like, oh, I have a superpower now, but I shall be the cheetah and like really a <laughs> What works for me with Jim Carrey is that he just becomes Bruce Wayne. Like yeah. his version of becoming a cool, well-dressed guy is dressing and styling <laughs> and behaving like how he sees Bruce Wayne be. Like that, right. that party scene where they are standing next to each other in the exact same suit, mm-hmm. with the exact same hair with the exact same little glasses. Like, I love oh, yeah. it. And, and he's really putting on and taking off the glasses as Bruce Wayne is doing yes. it. It's perfect. And it's not heavily commented on. There's one line of like, how come you don't look as good in that same suit? But like, it's just happening. I think it's wonderful. And I hear you, Johnny. I also hate like dork becomes cool with superpowers. But for like the Riddler to be like, uh, I wanted to be Bruce Wayne. He wouldn't embrace me. So I'm doing it anyway like actually works pretty nicely for me. And I think that that scene, um, you know, the, the big, uh, uh, gala is that's where Jim Carrey peaks in the movie. I think he is perfect in that scene. And after that, it just turns into a, a too many rhymes and, and jokes, but also, like, I do his hair looks like a normal person. Yeah, like, me too. That's yeah. The scale is like mm-hmm. when his hair is like a human being, it looks fine. And when his hair becomes crazy, you're like, it's not good anymore, Jim. And yeah. like, what's going on there? Is that a wig? Is he, Dying his hair every night. I think he's I dying his hair every night. Is how I always read it. And yeah, cutting it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I do uh, think the Riddler is when he's or Nigma rather when he's doing his Bruce Wayne routine. I do think he's a very uncool cool. I, I think yeah. I think Jim Carrey plays that very well. Where he's he's well, and also the I'm sorry the uh, no, it's okay. The book the book also gives us context for why he is so obsessed with Bruce Wayne. Like it goes back to elementary school. I'm actually which I'm actually about to tackle that. <laughs> So, okay, please, by all so, means. Yes, I think that I think that he uh when he's doing the Bruce Wayne scene, he is basically taking on all the signifiers of like I'm su- successful, I'm carefree, but Carrie plays it with this like raw desperation <laughs> where he just wants to be seen like that so badly. And I, I was gonna ask you, Johnny, since you watched the deleted scenes, is that uh elementary school thing uh, a scene that was filmed? No, and well, it's not included. It might have been in the script originally, since this does have a lot of flashbacks. And most of the stuff that is in both the book and the movie matches pretty closely. So it does make me wonder if a lot of the stuff that's not in the movie was originally meant to be in it. I'm but yeah, none, none of those first three introductory chapters are in or, like are any of the deleted scenes. Yeah. Um, I, I'm going to put my money on it not having been in the script because yeah. at the beginning of Battleship, uh, uh, Andrew and Johnny, I know you weren't with us, but the beginning of the novel Battleship by Peter David just has a scene where the two brothers that star in the movie are playing Battleship in the woods and one of them hits his head. And it's this, hmm. which, you know, and, and Peter David then in this book, or in the opposite order, before in this book, writes an intro for Enigma where it, it really doesn't have any consequence on the story. I, I, don't, I don't feel that him seeing Bruce Wayne in a newspaper really, I don't buy it. 
I don't buy mm-hmm. it being this connection moment. I don't moment. think you need it. Like, it's enough that he's like, I'm a genius, he's a genius, we should connect. Totally. Absolutely. Yeah. It's enough. And Especially because he works for the company. And mm-hmm. Peter David is apparently obsessed with just a prologue where somebody hits their head bad. I mean, but in this the case, idea he that Nygma hits coma. his head, is in a coma, and wakes up slightly crazier, and then therefore becomes, like, the Nygma we know today, is, like, a concept. I don't need it or want it, but it is... <laughs> Like an idea, yes. you know. Uh, so I, I, I hate to like get us off this topic and move things along, but like it's it's been a while us talking about this, and we have not mentioned sugar and spice, and <laughs> I, I, I think we have to. This be, we we, we got to talk sugar, sugar and spice. spice. Podcast. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Sugar and spice. I have, I ha- oh, I have so many questions. <laughs> uh, I have one question. Yes. Are they prostitutes? I, I think so. I think they have to be because this They're is not at least super villain groupies. Yeah. Right. Like at the fair. <laughs> who are these people they know who have yachts and helicopters and But did they have the personality to begin with, or was it assigned to them? It's like, okay, right. who wants to be the nice one? Who wants to be the dominatrix? It's like, okay, <laughs> oh I'll, I'll do it. Well, my hair's already blonde, so I'll do that. Uh now, <laughs> uh, I also want to know, uh, is there sex going on? Uh it, it, yeah, if they're if they're prostitutes, yes. maybe that and can yeah, yeah uh, weirdly I, don't I get think yeah. I'm and not, then eventually, sugar starts really being arm candy for Nigma. So do they? They do they swap at a certain point? It, right, right. Spice kind of sh- disappears for a while in the film. I feel like yeah. There uh, is some weird psychosexual stuff happening in general in all Batman movies, right? This no. one <laughs> has like sugar, spice, Two Face, and Nigma have like a really weird sex thing happening, partially because Jim Carrey is playing it like really fruity. Like, then there's these two women who fuck Two-Face, and then they all start swapping partners. There's something happening there. But also, Batman's in there, too. He mentions in the book, he's like, I mean, it'd be tough to not be Batman, because Sugar and Spice seem to like me. (laughs) Yeah, and Sugar's, like, into him, especially in the book. There's this whole part where she's like, we could have fun together. Yeah, Yeah. and (laughs) that one line where... Licks her teeth. That one line where he turns her down, and and, uh, Peter David's like... Uh, she said she was disappointed, and it seemed like she really was. <laughs> <laughs> I was even more disturbed by uh, the moment in uh, Two Faces' lair that they're really describing everything about the room and like how one side is one, uh, um, and then oh, you know where I'm going, and one television, one television on one side is playing Leave It to Beaver. The television on the Spice side is playing Exit to Eden. The Dan Aykroyd, Rosie O'Donnell dominatrix movie, which had just come out, I think, that year. I don't know. Did Peter David write an Exit to Eden novelization, too? Like, that that is a weird pull. That was not a successful movie. It was a critically reviled movie. But I guess it was the only movie that Peter David could think of that involved a dominatrix. So he put it in there. Well, he even even describes, and I don't have the passage right in front of me, but he describes the spice side of the room, for lack of a better word, as being like a porn shoot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I forgot that she was such a, yeah, a, a you know, kitten with a whip dominatrix. But. And this is something to talk about in the book also is the book is, I mean, the movie I believe is a PG 13, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. There's a lot more language and sort of overt sexuality in the book than I would expect for something like, Oh, my kid loved Batman forever. Let me <laughs> let them read the book. Mom, what's bitchingest mean? You know, like, 
There is a part where Two Face just goes, "Oh shit!" Yeah, which surprised <laughs> oh, me. Oh, I wanna, <laughs> it felt really out of place. I, I think I think I know exactly the passage, and I I do want to read that one. Um, hold on. It's something with while the you, brain box. It's it's, but it's I don't know if I have it marked. It's one while you find it. Oh, I've got it. Yeah. Okay. While you find it, I just want to acknowledge that I had read this novelization before. I uh, went to see Batman Forever as a kid, and I was rather disappointed by it. And I uh, I looked to this novelization, which I found at my local library, thinking this is going to give me answers. This is going to like make it a better experience. And you know what? It did. It actually is better <laughs> than the movie. But uh, I was amazed by how much I remembered from this book. Uh, you know. Now, uh, I'm just glad to know that you, you know, in the two years you went from the junior novelization of Jurassic Park to the (laughs) normal adult novelization of Batman Forever. So that's heartwarming. So it's on 144. Okay. Kind of a gross page. Um, (laughs) I I knew someone once with the last name Gross and their, their email address was just their first name, 144. I thought that was clever. Anyway, um... Okay, as if it were an utterly trivial string of deductions, Two-Face said, You correlated all dualities in the city, orders of half-and-half pizzas, wine splits, two-toned clothing, cross-referenced all addresses with multiples of two, crunched the probabilities by bi-coastal, bi-zonal location, leading you here. Holy shit. (laughs) I just love that um, that Two-Face's uh, commitment to duality is interrogated to this degree that he is ordering <laughs> half and half pizzas at a certain point. It has to be to the detriment of his enjoyment <laughs> where he's like, I really like pepperoni, but I have a, I have an aesthetic. Yeah, this, I, is the, this is the problem I have with this characterization is he refers to himself as like we and our, there are two yes. of him in there. They like different things. But the performance and the way he's written in this book is he's one dude who is really committed to a bit. Yeah, that, that is what it is. It's that they just don't commit fully or fully explore the idea. It's like, oh, is he is he really two sides of the uh, of, uh, you know, two people in there? It's like, no, no, he just it's funny if he says wheel all the time. Yeah, is he is he bifurcated like down the entire body? Or is it just One his face? That's what's not clear. Yeah, I, I don't think so. I think it's just the face. Uh I mean, his hands are fine, right? Oh, good like, point. So, a, does his yeah. one personality does his one personality have body envy? <laughs> <laughs> and also, can Sugar and Spice only kiss one side of Two Face's body? I yes, I have many questions. I would say yes. Yeah, if I was going to spin out that reality. <laughs> Like, you know, it clearly like the the one side of two faces, like you're a nice girl and you kiss my nice cheek. And the other side of two faces, like you're a mean bitch and we're going to slobber all over each other, but only <laughs> over here. I'm glad we're like stopping this conversation at <laughs> cheeks because like I, it's a real slippery slope. I tell you, I, I, I just do not want to know. I, ugh, wow. I mean, the tailoring alone of nice suit, zebra, pink leopard suit I mean that that alone would give you exactly where he hangs out, wouldn't it? Like yeah, one guy in all of Gotham yeah. does that. Yeah, I if anything, I well, I just wish that there were more of them because it's such an interesting concept and they're just they're reduced to cameos. Uh you know, Drew Barrymore was just kind of like on the rise herself at the time, and I think dating Jim Carrey, I think maybe that's 
one of the reasons she was there. I, I don't know if that lasted more than a few months, but, uh, uh, what about Debbie Mazar? Tell us about Debbie well, Mazar. Clearly she was just there for that one day because you never see her again after that initial scene, right? It, it's only sugar. Is that after true? That. No, she, no, she comes back at the end. Oh, is she? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. And the party scene, she shows up with two face. Oh, I missed her entirely during the party scene. I, okay. Yeah. May, I, Maybe I need to watch this movie again. No, I don't. No, I definitely do not need to. <laughs> what do you guys think of Robin? Love, uh, love, love. Let's let Good. Hannah take this. Love. What do you think of Robin, Hannah? Um, I just, for context, growing up, watching the animated series, reading comic books, being a child girl, Robin was like the number one crush of like... My little wife. So Chris O'Donnell is the cutest boy in the world. <laughs> he is. Even with those sideburns? Yes. I love the sideburns. Mm-hmm. They're adorable. <laughs> it was He's a- playing it so boyish and so cute and so charming and so petulant. And he is like fit, but not too fit. And his outfits are cute. And he's just like, I want to have a friend. I need a friend here. And I'm like, I love him. I love him. I'm a big I'm a huge Robin defender in general in all versions of Robin, and I'm a huge Chris O'Donnell defender. I love I will, him Yeah, I will Robin. agree with you on this, that I think the book and the film, because this is the problem that Nolan had, is that it's hard to introduce Robin into Batman mm-hmm. It's if he's not already there. And I think they do a good job of sort of, you understand his backstory, you understand the connection between why Bruce would want him there, you sort of understand his petulance. But I think even just like the little bits of camp they throw in there, like they get a holy something Batman in there and it's stupid, but it works within the context of what I've been told to believe because it comes on page like 210 of 240. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm, I'm here for it this. comes at the point. end of the movie that that's that happens in the movie, too. And I was actually shocked. I remember that being such a huge laugh line in that movie and watching it again. I, I thought, wow, he really throws it away. It's it, it barely registers like he uh, it's it's almost seems ADR uh, for a second. It like also he, is weird because Val Kilmer's response is what? Yeah. And then he explains there's rust, you know, metal with holes in it. And he just, and Val Kilmer goes, oh, end of exchange yeah there isn't oh, like it's, a punchline there or a it's almost as all. tortured a holy as andrew's riddles which we will hear at the end of the episode are <laughs> oh dear lord yeah. <laughs> i will play counterpoint to this robin thing hold on uh, I, I, okay I, Jane I, okay this is this is not a, a, a knock on chris o'donnell <laughs> who i actually i like chris o'donnell i think he's fine uh i think he's uh good even I don't think he's all that well written in this movie or no, I will clarify and say, I do not feel like this Robin is written for Chris O'Donnell because this really is the classic Robin story. This is what we have all come to know of Robin's origins. But I do feel that for the most part, his character is written like a child in this movie, like it was meant to be played by a 12 year old boy. And then they, someone said what what are you talking about of course we need a a hunk in this so let's get chris the age really shocked me having not seen this movie before also like i I mean when i turned it on i I thought that's that's a young adult man i thought this was going to be a boy in the scene where he and this is a a book specific scene but chase meridian is introduced in the book uh getting robbed uh getting getting uh, mugged and then Dick Grayson, she basically has a, a chance encounter with with the boy who will become Robin, and he gets her uh, purse back and and whatever. They have a nice little moment. 
it's written as if he's an eight-year-old boy. I mean, his yeah. father comes out and chastises him and goes, Robin, what did I teach you about putting yourself at risk? I, I mean, it really reads as if, you know, when my dad used to tell me not to get in cars with strangers. So then mm-hmm. to turn on <laughs> the movie and see that he was 19 years old was uh, was very shocking. Well, the, I mean, I agree the, with you on all of that. Also, I think that scene with Chase Meridian is really good. I wish mm-hmm. it was in the movie. Me too. Um, Chris O'Donnell was 25, and he reads a little older, maybe. Mm-hmm. Like, I do think he is, the character is supposed to be 19, but was probably written to be 15 or 16, would be my guess. Especially with all the references to, like, going into the, like, you know, adoption welfare yeah. system. Yeah, like, if he's 19, he's just loose now, yeah. for sure. Yeah. Um, he was going into it as a person that. who is adopting. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think Chris O'Donnell does the absolute best he can possibly do, given the circumstance he's in. And, uh, but in the book, you're like, well, this is a teenage boy, and how charming, and we like him. I yeah, also I think want it's a him testament. to find a little family. I think again. it's a testament to O'Donnell's performance that when I was reading this in the book, I got I was so bored by all of the Robin stuff. It was I was struggling to stay awake through it. In the movie, I actually thought it worked really well. I, I was enjoying the Robin uh, subplot more than I ever had before uh, because I, I do think some of the the developments are dumb where he steals the Batmobile and he pretends that he's Batman. It's like, yeah, so what? I forgot my suit. Uh, but I, I think it's better in the movie. It, it is so better in the movie. Like, yeah. I'm just a guy. I don't know. Yeah. But, I, I think he, it yeah, he is much better in this movie than I ever gave him credit for. I was actually surprised that I enjoyed him so much. I, uh, I asked my mother years ago who played Robin in Batman just cause I hadn't seen it. And she said the NCIS guy, and I read the uh, whole yeah. book picturing Mark Harmon. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's absurd. Now, was, do we all? It was not a good match for Kilmer, let me tell you. Do we all I know who was supposed to be Robin? I was about to say, okay, if you yeah. read this book imagining Marlon Wayans, yeah. it makes a lot of sense. It mm-hmm. fits perfectly. And I do think that Marlon Wayans in Batman Returns was going to be more of that. Uh, yeah, I mean, at the time, he would have been 15 years old or so. Uh, and Or, well, he maybe a little older than that. But he was. He but could, he would have read more as a teen as opposed absolutely, to like a, yeah. a young adult. And, uh, yeah, it's interesting to say think what might have been with that. It feels like if you look at the kind of and Wikipedia to be blamed as uh, to be trusted as it can be, all of the castings for these that were chosen before who they went with are very risky, interesting casts a lot of the time. Like Marlon Wayans is a very interesting take on Robin. But then to be like, you know, we were going to offer Brad Dourif or Kelsey Grammer, the Riddler or Mel Gibson or Martin Sheen. Two-Face, it's like, what are these choices? Were you just picking names out of a hat? So it, it's kind of interesting. It comes together as well as it is, but it is interesting to hear those other takes on it. And you wonder how much of the script was designed with a Marlon Wayans in mind more than a Chris O'Donnell, who yeah. I don't think of as a jokester. No, no. As much yeah. as a heartthrob. Uh, the, uh, some of them make sense. Like uh, Kelsey Grammer, you know, Frasier was, had just started. It was, it was new and exciting. People loved it. Uh, you do. Or Robin Williams. Robin Williams was attached to it for years. He was, he was going to be the Riddler in Batman Returns at one point because he really wanted to play the Riddler. And it was his for the taking. And then he dropped out, uh, you know, fairly late in the process. Uh, maybe because he read the script. I don't know. But uh, 
Jim Carrey came along and basically was dubbed the new Robin Williams. Uh, so uh, it, it was a natural fit, I guess. But uh, yeah, some of those other choices were were real odd. I've forgotten. Is the scene speaking of Robin uh, where he blames Batman for his parents' death? That wasn't in the finished movie, right? I don't. Yeah, it think is. He, it's yeah. very short. It is because he. It's during that scene where he's pretending to be Batman masquerading with the fluorescent gang and Batman shows up and he's just punching him. Mm -hmm. He gets, he gets very, very mad at him, but it's so quick and it almost immediately cuts. I feel like back to the Batcave that it feels like a throwaway scene more than the book where it actually sits and kind of contemplates that. Right. When he is angry at him in the movie, it seems like he's mad that Batman's taking him home. It seems like he's just having a fit about, not getting to run around in the Batmobile. Um, right. Whereas in the book, I, I want to find this passage because it's good. He uh, Basically, Batman has just picked up Robin from his little joyride in the Batmobile, and uh, Dick Robin says, You killed them, you killed them. If you'd made Two-Face see who you were at the circus, they'd still be alive, said Batman flatly. And so, I mean, even that does a lot of work. Basically, at the circus, if you haven't seen the film, uh, Two-Face is demanding that Batman reveal himself, and uh, Bruce Wayne is going to do it. He's ready to do it. He does it. He, he does. He says, Harvey, I'm Batman. Yeah, but basically not quickly enough, I guess. I think Or loudly enough. It's lost in the cacophony. Yeah. Bad plan on Two-Face's part. Um, also bad. Uh, what I don't like about that scene and several others in this is that uh, he, this Bruce Wayne, Val Kilmer's Bruce Wayne, really is not attached to the rules of Batman. He is in a second willing to reveal his identity. That's his plan. Like, oh, I'll just stand up oh, and say it's me. And then Batman like, has always been willing to do that. Like Michael Keaton tells everybody yeah. who he is all the time. So you know, just. But he's also about to retire. Like, quit being Batman towards the end of the film. Like, yeah, yeah, I, I had a good run, but yeah, this is the end of this. Uh, yeah, he, he just seems so flippant and flighty about it all. See, I the way that that is handled in the book, where there's a line where he says, like, nothing is worth people's lives. Like, my secret, it doesn't matter if anybody's going to get hurt. So, like, it's worth it for me to stand up and say, I'm Batman and take whatever's coming to me if it saves a single life. I'm not sure that totally reads in the movie, but I, I appreciate that sentiment that he's so committed to saving people that he's like, I got to do it. I'll do whatever it takes, except kill Two-Face in the moment that it matters. And like, that's his struggle. I also thought that was just very consistent with like his his belief system that, yeah, if 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 Two-Face makes it so bare, just reveal yourself and lives will be saved. He, he goes, OK, yeah, that makes sense to me. I thought that was great. Um, I, I guess I, I just think, enjoy the trope too much that every Batman tends to employ at some point, which is uh, uh, Bruce Wayne saying like, oh, excuse me, I'll be right back or, or, or pretending to, to get knocked out or something right. like that. So he could slip away and come back as Batman. And, and he uh, does do a little of that. He does. But it's not in the circus where he's just like running in as Bruce Wayne yeah. touching people. Bringing it back to this, the connective thread with Robin is like during that bit in the movie when Dick is like, you killed my parents. This is your fault. Batman says to him, like, if Bruce Wayne could have saved your parents by dying, he would have, mm. which is not or like the, the line is better than that. But basically, it's if I could have, I would have. Um, yeah. And I don't think that that line makes it into the book, though the sentiment is, is definitely there elsewhere. Uh, it works. I don't know. It all works for me. 
I don't love this movie, but I'm really talking myself up to it. Well, (laughs) Hannah, it's one of those movies where, like, it isn't the best movie ever made, but it consists of these enormous swings. It has these really interesting, big performances in it and so much going on. I mean, I wrote in my letterbox review, it feels like the, the sixth Kilmer Batman. It feels like you're coming into this franchise where we know these villains and we know this city. Um, and I get that impulse. It's I don't think it's a great movie, but I do feel like defending it because it's so unique and it's so unabashedly itself, which is so much more than many movies can say. I agree. It does. <laughs> yeah, it does have a, uh, a a real uh sense of style and tone to it, wildly different from the Burton films, and I do not have a problem with that per se. I prefer the Burton films, but I uh I was surprised by how much I enjoyed the uh uh the the motifs and style of this film this time around. Uh it, it was uh, maybe because I was comparing it to uh its natural devolution which uh I, you know a few years later it's like oh mystery men looks like this world like uh but uh but yeah I, I actually like uh the look of this a little more and I really like where it goes in the next one where it really just turns into a a cartoon um and and just elaborate sets that only ever feel like sets never real locations the like the heightening of gotham city from like a kind of interesting art deco place with some big statues to like every building is sitting on the shoulders of a giant statue Mm -hmm. is delightful i would be curious like in the you know the dream world what a schumacher directed like batman returns would look like which is just like a stronger script with stronger characters like would that be a masterpiece (laughs) um I think it would be good, probably. Like I, I'm a, a you know a Schumacher defender, and I think he has like so many gifts or uh, did rip. I miss him every day. But um, you know, I wonder. Like these scripts are not as strong as the Burton Batman's, and like would it? Would we have the same conversation of like Schumacher ruined Batman if he had gotten a chance to like do a better script? Uh, and for considering Schumacher uh, did get so much flack for Batman and Robin, uh, he did get hired to do that movie off of this one, which was a success. And actually, I think fairly well received critically at the time. Uh, I remember uh, Gene Siskel, I think, was real high on it. He really liked it. Uh, yeah, th- this was uh, people liked this movie when it came out uh, way more than Batman and Robin, which is weird because they're way closer to each other than uh, people remember. I could be Marie. wrong, but I, I I watched the Val Kilmer documentary that just came out about a week ago, and I believe that in his narration, he qualifies it as a critical failure, but a financial success. Yeah, I think that, I mean, it, it, the critics weren't over the moon for it, but mm-hmm. I think they, by and large, they liked it more than Batman Returns, which was Critics were very down on when that came out. Uh, they, there was a lot of talk about how violent it was and and how dark and that the Penguin is just too nasty a character. Uh, and this one, I think that critics appreciated the uh, kind of, you know, this one is a little more for kids angle of it all. I have a weird take on Batman Returns, which is I, I like all the strange stuff in it, but I, I think the action is kind of it kind of puts me to sleep, which I, people love. I don't know. Um, Johnny, you were talking about... Um, the trope of of Batman, you know, protecting his identity. How do you all feel about the very uh, laboriously maintained trope 
in this book of Batman refusing to kill anyone and being obsessed with the idea of death of death rather. I mean, it's in line, right? Mm -hmm. That's his whole deal is he doesn't kill people. But it is weird that he doesn't usually talk about it so much. He's not constantly reiterating the rules. Uh, I I guess it's for, you know, uh, a a new entry point of uh, audience members coming into it, but it, it is, it gets a little exhaustive after a while. There is that part in the novel where he throws a henchman down an elevator shaft and then it's like, oh shit, I shouldn't have done that. I hope he's okay. And in the movie, they just don't throw that guy down the elevator shaft. They're just like, but even in the movie, they have scenes where it's like he puts the guys underwater in a net, but don't worry, it floats to the surface. They can breathe. (laughs) I I think the guy uh, being thrown down the elevator shaft is is an important passage because it's okay to have this rule that he won't kill. I actually think it's weirdly realistic. Like, we're used to revenge being this huge thing in cinema where oh, someone killed my parents. Now I'm a killing machine. We're, we're weirdly used to that. This is strangely realistic. Someone killed my parents. I am against all violence. <laughs> <laughs> I hope that they see justice in a court of law. <laughs> but the like more that. that this book draws attention to his non-killing policy, the more it makes me think about how all of his actions are at odds with his non-killing policy. If he's going to be dispatching criminals in the way that he does, he's going to accidentally kill people. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Can I speak to that exactly, Andrew, in the way that they talk about how the Riddler is dispatched? Sure. Go for it. So in the movie, if you've seen it, the Riddler, I guess the brainwaves go back to him or go out of him and his face kind of goes, whoa, whoa, like wobbity wobbity in a CGI fashion. The passage as written in the book really clarifies that uh, the kind of the circumstances of that. So uh, the battering smash into the antenna and a massive charge of electrons fed into the transceiver, overloading them. No, screamed the Riddler as he was bombarded with massive pulses of neural energy. His entire head started to distort, fluctuate in size and waver. His brain actually seemed to grow, skin stretching for a second over his expanding skull before snapping back into place. It didn't, of course, <laughs> since the result would have been a massive cerebral hemorrhaging and instant death. So they're going out of the way, even in this book, to be like, really crazy stuff is happening. But don't worry, he's not dead. He's fine. He's good. He's all, he's all yeah. right. Batman didn't kill him. This is still grounded in real life. Don't worry, kids. <laughs> yeah. they, they could also just say his head expanded like a balloon and then snap back into place and, and say he was still alive. It's weird that they take this medical, you know, sidestep <laughs> where they go. Uh, his head expanded, but of course it didn't because that would cause a cerebral hemorrhage. <laughs> it did disturb me quite a bit as a kid when you see Jim Carrey with his distorted face in the aftermath of it. It's like, wow, that, yeah. it's the darkest that thing to happen in the entire film. Yeah. Yeah. And then when you see him in the asylum at mm-hmm. the very end, he has like a lot of bandages going on. And I'm like, did they have to drain his brain? Yeah. A scene which oh, did God. not make it into the novel. The novel ends with Jim Carrey, uh, sorry, the Riddler, screaming in terror as Batman basically comes down to pick him up and take him to Arkham. And then it I ends. believe you're mistaken. But the book has a whole no, yeah, no, yeah, that's in there. That's the there. very last uh, chapter. Chapter 27. Somebody didn't mm-hmm. finish oh, the book. Scene. No, I finished the book. Wait, <laughs> you wait. didn't read the last, the last two pages of the book? Yeah. My last 27. Oh, I guess I didn't. <laughs> 
Yeah, that scene is I think my book. book was stuck together. Wow. <laughs> hey, listeners, cancel me. Thank you. <laughs> Bye. I mean, you didn't get Peter David struggling to capture the Joel Schumacher ending of a Batman movie where Batman and Robin run towards the camera in silhouette. Uh, does he say something? Can you read it to me? Yeah. Anna? Um, hmm, let me see. Let me see. I mean, it's not quite that, but here's what he says. And high above the city, crouched on the edge of a gargoyle-lined building, Batman looked out over his city. He didn't even have to glance behind him to know that Robin was nearby. Their capes billowed in the breeze as they swung off across the skyline, twin guardians of the night. The darkness opened up to them, and they were gone. End of book. So it like has the oh, same wow. like silhouette cape billowing concept. I was uh, going to say, I, I, I don't know... Wow, I, I'm I'm so silly. I blame my old copy for sticking together. I'm sorry. Well, now you have something to go back to. That last shot is, it has always struck me as this really weird abstract uh, mm-hmm. metaphor of, oh, and now these two are our teammates. And, and it even returns in uh, Batman Robin with Alicia Silverstone running in be- beside him. Uh, yeah. To me, that has always felt like, okay, this is a trailer shot. This isn't meant to be in the movie. This is like what you you know have in the background of a McDonald's tie-in ad or something. It, it just feels so weird it. to end on that. Uh, I mean, I like the image so of it. so purely Joel for yeah. him to be like, I think we need like a metaphoric continuation continuance here like you know in the same way that like there's that shot of the bat flapping its wings that we see two or three times which is like essentially a dream it's a metaphor it's not like a real thing anyone's seeing i wish there was more of that stuff oh there there was i mean i know and i wish wish the man bat was in the movie i wish all of that was there i think it would have been to have this like abstract moment of like and now we run towards the future to stop crime forever as partners hand in hand whatever would have been great like it all would have felt cohesive and it still feels fine to me because i'm in love with it and i love everything mm-hmm. about it <laughs> i have a question for the group go for yes. it why is this movie called batman forever because he thinks about quitting and then he says no i am batman forever <laughs> Now that's as good an explanation as we're going to get. That's, that's Yeah, do you think that's what the discussion was in the writer's room or the producer's room, no. whoever named this movie? No, I don't know. I mean, it feels like Batman, Batman Returns, Batman Forever. That feels like a logical sequence to me. And within the book, you get then, now, and forever mm-hmm. as little things. And it does, I do think this book is saying that Bruce Wayne has always been Batman in his heart of hearts. And he has to come to that acceptance that like Batman is not something separate from him. He is both because he chooses to be. That's his future now, then, forever. It, I don't know. That's very good. I, I do think it is hilarious that this is not the only third entry in a franchise to have the word for as part of a uh, prefix <laughs> in its title. The, the most recent Bad Boys movie, Bad Boys 3, was also Bad Boys for Life. It's like... Don't, don't you people think you're going to make another one of these? You don't want to save <laughs> yeah. this title for number four? They certainly knew they were going to make another Batman movie. So maybe that one should have been Batman forever. Except that it seems and this like one a should have been Batman thing. and Robin, a movie that's about Robin. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I mean, this one should be Batman and Robin. Yeah, for sure. And the next one should be Batman. Although Batman, Robin is sort of an afterthought in the movie. I mean, he is mostly Dick Grayson throughout the film. Like, I, I was shocked. I forgot how late Robin quote unquote comes into it. It's I the last the 10 minutes. Yeah. The, the suit's pretty good. And back it has nipples. a little collar. It's so mm-hmm. cute. Oh my God. Johnny, will yeah. you yeah. be Patrick satisfied Taylor. if the fourth 
Bad Boys movie, which has been greenlit, would would you be satisfied if they called it Bad Boys Five Ever? I, As they better film. They, they, <laughs> it's the only way I'll see the damn thing. <laughs> I have a couple things just from the book that made me laugh. So, um, first of all, uh, chapter 20 is just insane. Chapter 20 is the one where, uh, he wants to reveal to Chase Meridian that he is Batman. And so what happens is that, so Chase Meridian's arc is that she has gone from lusting after Batman to lusting after Bruce Wayne. (laughs) And Batman wants to reveal that he is Bruce Wayne. So he jumps into her window or something. They kiss. Then she, like, talks to him for a while. He doesn't respond. He jumps back out the window, just watches her from, like, across the alley. And we, like, hear her internal thoughts. And she goes, I knew it. Bruce Wayne's Batman. I figured it out somehow. And then from across the alley, Batman goes, good. She figured it out. That's what I wanted. (laughs) That's all very unclear in the book. The one thing that works better in the movie with Chase Meridian is she kisses Batman first and then she kisses Bruce Wayne and is like, wow, same mouth. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like that. And it's, like, so unclear what's happening in that moment, where it's, like, she figured it out. How? What? And what, like... Well, it also mentions she has a whole... Instead of her stack of Batman pictures that she has on her desk or her wall, it's now all Bruce Wayne pictures. Still creepy, Chase. Still creepy, girl. There's also no uh, confirmation that uh, she sleeps in the nude like there is in uh, the film, but that Nicole Kidman clearly... uh, Well, I don't know. Maybe that's just something I noticed. I mean, in yeah, in the book, they're like, she's in a nightgown. Mm-hmm. In the movie, she is naked, and then she wraps her sheet around herself, and then the mm-hmm. sheet becomes a dress. It really like, does. It's a yeah. beautiful dress. She it can is, wear that to the Met yeah. Gala. <laughs> it is draped so beautifully, and I don't, I'm not convinced, I would be so curious if on set, if it was like a real sheet, and she did it, and Joel Schumacher was like, no, 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 honey, come on, let's let's make this look nice on you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I fully believe he would have. <laughs> We'll have to go through his filmography and see if he's done that on other people in other films. Here's one thing I will say about Joel Schumacher and dressing women and his general gaze of women, which is that like Joel Schumacher infamously very, very gay. Um, and in his films, you can tell that he has no interest in like women's bodies, mm-hmm. but like his interest in or women. Or heterosexual kissing even. <laughs> that too. The kissing in Batman Forever is weird. Um, <laughs> but like, his interest is very much like women's faces. He's like, they're beautiful. They're engaging. You know, they have things to offer that aren't their tits. And so I really appreciate, and we'll talk about this in Batman and Robin more, I'm sure, where like Chase Meridian is never like, here's her beautiful body. She's wearing beautiful dresses mm-hmm. and they're skin tight and she looks great, but the focus is never on her tits. The same way with like when we have Poison Ivy in like leotards and leaves, it's like the camera is on her face yeah. and you're looking at her face. I yeah, love and he it casts, so much. He tends to cast very tall, statuesque mm-hmm. women. Yeah. Uma Thurman, Nicole Kidman. Yeah, because I noticed in the book, he doesn't do it too much, Peter David. But there are, like, references to, you know, the shape of Chase Meridian's bodies in her description in a way that's never happens in the film. There's never any leering, you know, shot as she walks away from the camera, yeah. which is to be appreciated. Though there are still those painfully odd lines of dialogue of, 
how would you, I want to get you out of those clothes and into a black dress. Yeah, like, it's weird. So. It's still fighting against the script, even when it's in Joel Schumacher's hands. It's been very fun yeah. to just hear you guys reference Batman and Robin and be like, that person is in that movie. Um, but it, on the page, it, at one point, isn't there a reference to Batman having already met Poison Ivy in this book? Yes. yes. Yeah. And is does that hold true in Batman and Robin? Are they reuniting? No, no she gets an origin story in this in Batman and Robin. Uh, but yeah, as, as Hannah and we've all said, it, it that that film is almost not a sequel to this. Well, I guess it is in the sense of Robin, uh, Robin's progression. But in the other sense, it really is just like sort of a floating timeline of like, oh, here's another isolated Batman adventure. Um, and I also feel like, and I think I, I said it sort of before, but I think that this movie coming out after we've had three years of the animated series, it's as if you have Batman, Batman Returns, then the animated series, then Batman Forever. And that's the continuity they're playing in. So you get like, well, yeah, Two-Face has already done his Two-Face stuff. We've already encountered Poison Ivy. And then they make different choices in the next movie because you have to introduce new villains. Yeah, and Poison Ivy really had a renaissance because of that uh, animated series. She was not a very popular villain for years. So I think that maybe her reference in this is just sort of a, oh, people know who Poison Ivy is now, which they probably didn't 10 years prior. Uh, So there is a reference to Poison Ivy. There's also a reference to Arnold Schwarzenegger. I I was amused by that. Right. Uh, Where, uh, of course, uh, what, Riddler is doing Arnold, right? Or uh, He's doing an Hasta La Vista. Yeah. yeah. Uh, So it's like, oh, wow, okay. So Arnold exists in this universe, and and, wow, that that means something. a lot of questions about what exists in the Batman universe. Like, they reference, like, the Jeopardy theme, and, Mm -hmm. like, certain like songs from movies and i'm like how much does this overlap with our world i don't understand exit to eden (laughs) and it's like could they not get jeopardy for the movie because that's in the book and it's like did they not get the rights to use the song did abc not approve but he's allowed to have to answer in the form of a question you're out right so like did they shoot it Uh, and they had to do two versions my guess is that they didn't want to pay for the song Uh, it, it usually comes down to that well, uh, totally unrelated, but what's that weird rights issue where sometimes there's songs in trailers and then the movie will have a different song? Like it'll have a character listening to like Happy Death Day did that. Like her alarm was like a, an actual rap song that I've heard before. And then in the movie, it was like one they made up. But well, this oh. is a question for my music licensing life, <laughs> but uh, uh, you know, I, I, she she just uh, ate dinner across from me, and I, I think she's uh, disappeared again into the ether. All right, well, I'll I'll continue to live wondering. <laughs> um, I just want to read uh, before I get to the big question that's on everyone's mind. I just want to read um, my favorite line in the book, which is surprisingly enough on page five. <laughs> so, Damn. Batman in his internal monologue has just recalled. A bunch of advice that his father gave him. <laughs> and then he goes, oh, I know you're going to break. And then he goes. Somehow words of advice as to how to take care of oneself, lose their impact when the advisor isn't able to keep himself from being killed. <laughs> it seemed to undercut the entire premise. <laughs> so he's like, I'm just throwing all my dad's advice out now that he's gone. That's out. <laughs> But this also comes two paragraphs after the father said, uh, 
you know, don't like go out into these bad, this part of the grounds, it's bad weather, but you could easily break your leg, his father had said, and then with a smile added, and of course, if that happened, we'd have to take you out and shoot you. <laughs> yeah, that was a, a, a weird joke that like is nowhere in any of these sorts of films. Like you, you never do a joke like that. That's, uh, That's very, a Thomas Wayne. Seems so off, uh, you know, for what we know about, you know, the Bruce Wayne, you know, Thomas Wayne. Like, it doesn't seem like that kind of uh, father-son relationship, but, yeah. He comes off a a little uh, like a jerk in this book between that and the the diary entry being uh, Bruce insists that we go see this movie. He insists. It just, he seems very uh, pissed off by his son. Yeah, detached and, yeah. Well, nothing's going to make a dad a better dad than when he dies and you think back on him and you go, he must have been a good dad, right? Uh, So true. Um, He'd be alive if he was. Johnny, if you were to consider recommending this book to a person, would you do it at all? And if so, to what type of person would you recommend it? I actually think that this uh, enhances the film quite a bit. I, I think that it gives a lot of context to stuff that is in the movie that is never explained, and that this uh, version, the, uh, start to finish this book, probably would have made a better movie, uh, I, for the most part. Uh, you wouldn't have to change much, maybe some casting would have uh, you know, altered things here and there, but I actually think that the story and themes in this are written better in the book than they are in the film. So I think that as novelizations go, this is one of the better ones I've uh, read. Andrew Marco, same question, different answer. <laughs> yes, I would say I would recommend this to per- someone who had read the movie. I would actually recommend this to someone who had not seen the movie because Batman is so sort of culturally well-known, and I feel like this book does a good enough job about explaining Batman and the other characters that even if you just had a passing knowledge of it's a superhero story, I think it works on its own. And I do think it also improves the film that was attached to it. So I would say anyone could read this book, more or less, as long as they have an interest in action or superheroes or that sort of genre, and enjoy it. Hannah Blackman. Yeah, I think we've all, everyone's made strong points here. I, too, would recommend it if you have an interest in Batman. Um, I think it's a nice companion to the movie. It's, you know, better in some ways. There's other things I don't like quite as much. But if you like the movie at all or think it, like, has something missing that you're curious about, like, this is the quintessential novelization concept for me. It's like you watch the movie and you're like, ooh, I wish I had a little more. And then the book gives it to you, and that's what this novelization does. So I would definitely recommend it if anybody has, like, a passing fancy to read it. I'd be like, oh, yeah, that's a good one. Check it out. Um I also, though, would be like, but don't forget to watch the movie because everyone's faces be beautiful. (laughs) That they are. I myself am not as positive on the book as as the rest of you, though I did enjoy reading it. Um, I think that a lot of what we are enjoying about the book uh, is this intersection between it and the movie that we saw. So while a chapter might not be incredibly written or incredibly creative. We're sort of doing this work where we're going, but if that had been in the movie as I saw it, that would be terrific. So on its own, I don't think the book is, is amazing. I did enjoy reading it. I I mean, in the intro, I called it on balance, decent, which is either a compliment or a burn, depending on where you're coming from. Um, 
But I would definitely recommend this to someone who loved the movie or loved Batman and was yet to see the movie. But as Hannah said, I think you absolutely have to pair it with the film um, on its own. It would be I don't know. There, there's just so many fantastic uh, moments and performances in it. And just uh, I really enjoyed Schumacher's visuals. So, uh, yeah, I uh, I would recommend it to a super fan. Well, you should watch some more Schumacher's. He has so much to give you. Uh, I mean, I, I definitely will. I also realized uh, I've seen The Lost Boys, so I'm up to like six now. <laughs> I, I mean, and if you if you like this, I, I definitely recommend his debut feature, uh, The Incredible Shrinking Woman. It, it has a lot of the same goofy qualities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Fan of the Opera is... A movie, yeah. <laughs> it, is, it is good Schumacher. As an it adaptation of Fan of the Opera, like, you know, you might have opinion, but it is good bubblegum Schumacher. Yeah, I, I can't delicious. argue with that. Um, I also am a big fan of 8mm. I, I kind of like no that one, one too. no one likes, yeah, but I, I think it is a really interesting movie that's, like, about what, what we want to see in movies. I don't know yeah. what that is, and it's got so some t- maybe it's I'll a, check that out. It has Nicolas Cage and Joaquin Phoenix, and it's yeah. ugly and weird. And Gandolfini has, in there, too, right? Yeah. yeah. So it's an interesting little movie. It's been a while for that one for me. Hmm. You also might think um, Blood Creek is fun, which is just a full-on horror movie that has, like, early Henry Cavill in it. Mm. Um it's like a, an early Michael Fassbender as like a zombie necromancer Nazi. It's fun. It's really fun. Uh, Party was born to play. Could not be yes. more sold on everything you just <laughs> said. <laughs> Again, I've watched all of the Schumachers. I have opinions on every single one of them. Uh, I love him. Oh, I, I Andrew, have you him. seen St. Elmo's Fire or DC Cab? DC Cab is super fun. Uh, St. Yeah, Elmo's yeah. Fire is also fun. Also, Cousins. I love Cousins. One of my favorite romances. Oh, I thought you were just saying like as a trope. <laughs> oh no, sorry, the movie cousin. Godfather 3, my favorite movie. <laughs> I forgot that was him. I, I was uh, meaning to revisit Cousins recently. I saw it was streaming somewhere. I was like, oh, I haven't okay. seen that since it came out. Very sweet. It's a sweet, lovely little movie. And I did really like your DC Cab review. I just saw that for the first time. It yeah, was, uh, everyone should go I've read Hannah's to find for years. take on Joel Schumacher. It's positive. The only one that I couldn't get on board with at all was the number 23. <laughs> that movie's you're, you're not alone. <laughs> it's, it's, I tried so hard. It's a very strange movie. <laughs> um, to our, uh, our surely dashing listeners, uh, slash readers, slash viewers. I mean, we, we are asking people to engage in a lot of media. Um, thank you for listening to the first season of Authorized. This is the season one finale uh please do all the things that you would do for a podcast to our podcast uh you know rate it review it make sure that when we come back in most of three months you get a little ding on the phone and you go oh is that my friend who ghosted me years ago no (laughs) it's season two episode one of authorized which will be joel schumacher's uh batman and robin uh, so that will come out, I believe, on January 6th is what we were eyeing, if that's feasible. Uh, and if I'm lying, you'll find out the hard way. <laughs> Good night.
Okay, so to start out, I think I know, I think you all know what I'm going to say, uh, which is um, I, we, growing up, was horrifically terrible at riddles, and I, I'm terrified of riddles, and so... You're right, uh, this is what I thought you were going to say. This is definitely, this is how we start every episode. Um, <laughs> I have prepared some riddles for you all. Oh, dear Lord. Oh, boy. All right. And this isn't a trivia-style thing. You can discuss it with one another. I mean... <laughs> no, it should be... After what I put you through, it should be a trivia-style thing. I mean, I'm more thinking that if this gets tagged on to the end of the episode, we shouldn't just have long, awkward silences. <laughs> oh, sure. <laughs> uh, okay. All right, give us these riddles. Riddle number riddle one. I'm, I, I'll read these out loud for the listener, and I'll, I'll also drop these in the chat. And um, thank you for indulging me, everyone. So, riddle number one. I touch your feet. I am a bull. I help you make the vessel full. I touch your feet. I am a bull. I help you make the vessel full. I mean, it's a, it's a better riddle than any of the ones that are in Batman Forever, so That's I can fair. commend you on that. Yeah. Can uh, you can uh, you judge a riddle before you've heard the answer? Because what if it's just fully idiotic well, I, logic? That's a fair point. <laughs> if it's a bullshit pun, then it's not a good riddle. Yes, totally. And I'm actually having to uh, think about it as opposed to uh, you won't find 13 on my face. Gee, <laughs> I wonder what that could be. Oh, my God. God. You know, I think we're being unfair because the original riddle of the Sphinx is also pretty obvious. Yeah. So I, I, let's cut Mr. Riddler a little mm-hmm. slack. Okay. I actually... Time to, I agree that the riddle of the Sphinx is obvious, but I, I, I take a lot of issue with it, too. I, I really dislike riddles that sort of play with language where they, they engage in a metaphor so completely that they're like, kind of separated from reality, if that makes sense. So the use of, like... What's the answer to this one? Oh, the answer to this one is a shoehorn. A shoehorn. How is it a ball? It has horns. Okay. So... I think this is more pun territory. Great, so, and now we have to... Now we have to rate this one uh, one to five. So how do we feel? Well, here's the thing. A a shoehorn doesn't touch your feet. The shoehorn touches the shoe, and then the shoe touches your feet. Yeah, no, the shoehorn is, is between oh, well, the oh, shoe guess, and the foot. I w- no, okay. I was actually thinking, never mind. I, I was thinking uh, uh, a shoehorn, a, uh, a standing shoehorn uh, in the closet. Never mind. Oh, never okay. Mind. Did you come up with this or did you Google No, I, I have written six riddles <laughs> for you to enjoy. Okay? So, okay, this changes the perspective I'm coming at this with. Now, now. <laughs> I understand they're terrible. I'm terrible at <laughs> riddles. I'm trying to grow in front of all of you. <laughs> so you don't need to get any taller. Be brutal. One to five. How good is it? I'm not going to cry if you say one. Um, like a one and a half, two. I think the bull part is bad. Is bullshit. That doesn't work. Yeah, all right. yeah. I think the let's, vessel's a little confusing. Let's give also. me 1.5 on this, so I'm going to write that down. Um, <laughs> Whatever makes you sleep at night. Okay, and I'm going to grab the, uh, the second riddle here. Don't worry, guys, there's only six. <laughs> and uh, feel free to just give up on them easy, because I, I feel like the, the really interesting part is just judging how good I am at this. <laughs> Riddle number two. Without me, 
you need me. See me too much, you need me. I've never been to Seattle. So it's not Fraser. Okay, okay. Without uh, me, you need coffee? me. It's not coffee. See me too much, you need me. I've never been to Seattle. The Seattle part, again, feels really out of place with the riddle. And just to move things along, I'll just give you the answer here, everyone. This one is sleep. Oh, oh, oh this is, you're bad at this. So, this is bad. You're these bad. are bad, and that's fine. There's I think only a good riddle needs to be solvable. Like you have to be able. To <laughs> yeah, this is not my trivia, Andrew. Okay, I thought that these were solvable, but I'm growing. I'm trying, <laughs> trying to be better. So, what are we scoring this one? 0.5 at most. I think yeah, one is the good. lowest you could probably go one to five. Can I have a <laughs> one? Five, what? No, I've seen how you letterbox. This is a 0.5. Okay, <laughs> fine. I have I have 0.5 on this. All right, don't worry, only four more. Uh, I'll, I guess to give you a hint on this one, it is also a movie one, okay? Oh, good. Okay. Okay, babe. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why I'm doing that. All right. Two plus two equals five. A successor with a neon vibe. I don't know. Great. This one is Wonder Woman 1984. That was the answer? I don't yeah. like this. That's not a riddle at all. <laughs> Why like two plus two, of, I didn't see of, the film. Oh Why God. does two plus two equal five? Because in 1984, they, they two plus two equals five is what they try to convince you is the truth when... Um, oh, so you're talking about 1984 and Wonder Woman 1984. Well, you, I think the idea is you take the two plus two equals five. It helps you unlock 1984. No, All right. I've stars. never read cool. 1984 and I've never seen Wonder Woman 1984. One. Okay. Not a riddle. Great. Riddles we've only, like logic we've only got three more. Um, all right. So let's see here. Uh, you guys want to keep doing the podcast, right? This isn't at all <laughs> horrific. This season finale could be the end of the show. <laughs> <laughs> like, we hate you now. We gotta go. Sorry, other guests. Um, all right. I knew this wasn't going to go well, but this is, uh, the, this is going terribly. If you're still listening, help us. <laughs> okay. This, I mean, now I've just lost all confidence. I'll just tell you the answer. Rare but low in cost, my order became my value. What is it, guys? Uh, 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 Justice League Dawn of Justice? or <laughs> just, just, Justice League Dawn of Justice. All right, guys. This one was the $2 bill. Oh, I thought it was another That's movie. That's at least better. He was the no. second president, better, and he got on the $2 bill. All right, thank you for the constructive criticism. Two, what was, two out of five. Two out of five. Ooh, that feels good. <laughs> All right, we've only, John got, Adams we've only got two left. Okay. Um, great, I'll never do this to you again. I'm, I'm worried see. for Batman and Robin now. Yeah. <laughs> All the ice-related puns. All right. I taste bad in the morning. I hide in the day. At night, I come out to play. Toothpaste. Breath. Pretty close. Both of those pretty close. It's just like the slightest variation on that idea. (laughs) I taste bad in the morning. I hide at in the day. At night, I come out to play. Alcohol. Open mouth breathing. It's just oh, oh go uh, ahead. Ma- mouthwash it, for the uh, okay yeah the alcohol thing made me think okay. it's just mouth bacteria. 
Bad oh, that bad. common phrase, mouth bacteria. <laughs> you almost had us, but this is another one star. Okay, so I'm up. Okay, I'm up to a six, just cumulative score for five the, riddles. The answer to that was like toothpaste or mouthwash. Then it would be a better riddle, but because you chose something so not intuitive. Bad riddle. Okay. It, feel, it feels like we're playing Jumanji right now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I only have one more, and um, uh, oh, then, we're, then we're done. Okay. Not, of Jedi, not of Jedi, nor of Khan, both scot-free of me. Not of Jedi, nor of Khan, both scot-free of me. Yeah, I'm not sure how much the, the Star Wars and the Star Trek fall into this, or if it has to do with the Return or the Wrath. Think about or the, if it has to do with Montgomery think Scott. Ab- think about the lawsuit. The lawsuit. This is a bad riddle. The, <laughs> the, la- the, the, la- lawsuit. the lawsuit. The lawsuit. Whose lawsuit? The lawsuit. Okay, just what is it? Hold on, I'm putting something in the chat. Oh, God. Is it just the word lawsuit? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I hate you. I quit. I read this whole book. I'm excited to talk about it. Okay, okay, I'm out. Okay. I'm gone. It's just, it's just revenge, okay? Oh, um, that's what I thought it might be, but I doubt it. Wait, was it, it going to be called Revenge of Khan? It was going to be called Revenge of Khan and Revenge of the Jedi. They, I, I know believe, Revenge of the Jedi. I believe they yeah. sued each other, or there was some sort of legal dispute, and they both moved away from the name. And then, of course, of oh, Tony's is that why? I just thought that the I, I thought the Revenge of the Jedi thing was always a like George Lucas pouted and said, um, Jedi just don't seek revenge that's uh, not what jedi do i'm calling that not a good riddle though with a little workshopping it could be better yeah great and the lawsuit is not a helpful clue (laughs) (laughs) andrew i don't want to be an ed bigley jr about this but i think you're bad at your job and your job is riddles (laughs) you're fired i need i need a rating for this just to uh to for out of five slightly better one and a half so i ended up scoring seven and a half uh, divided by six, so I got I got around a one, and um, hold on, let me just check on my key here what that comes out to. Uh, I'm just gonna share my screen for a moment. Uh, that makes me a master, a master. Cool. All right, that's awesome. Thank you so much for indulging me, guys. For the listener at home, pro was zero, king was five, everything in between was master, if I saw correctly. He did not give us very long to look at it. I can't believe he didn't didn't even make one of the levels Riddler. (laughs) That would be better.